Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast, or you can just search for Conversations with Consequences on any podcast app. We're all over the place. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and um, I'm joined today in studio. I'm in D.C., very happy to see my friends in person. I have our legal legal at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti Bayer, with us today. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. <laughs> Um, I know that you're, she's getting tired of my legal eagle. No, I actually joke. love it. And I'm remembering that I love the fact that you call me legal eagle so much that I go to the airport even if I'm not supposed to pick you up. Oh, yes, airport. that happened today. <laughs> always she flying. She was very kind to pick me up at the airport on my way from Miami, but I had made other arrangements. I was going to stop and friend. pick other, other people up. I was going to Uber. I was going to put an Uber sign, but I, didn't, <laughs> I couldn't find a pen in the, in the van. That's the way to use your time wisely. <laughs> or at least make some money on the side. Today, we have a guest in studio who's another legal legal. <laughs> Soars way above so, me, though, that's for sure. So today on your radio show or your podcast, you get a doctor and two lawyers talking to you about a very interesting topic. Our other guest today, our, our one, one of our guests today, is Mary Hassan. Um, she's an attorney and a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and the University of Notre Dame Law School. She's also the Cato Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She's one of the smartest ladies in D.C., possibly yeah. the nation, which is yeah. saying a lot. <laughs> Thank you for having me, but that's quite a buildup. I don't, uh, uh, I don't this know. This is going to be the best podcast episode ever. Yes. No pressure, maybe. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. No, I'm not. I'm not being overly kind. This is absolutely true about, true about Mary Hassan. She directs the Catholic Women's Forum, which is a network of Catholic professional women. Uh, and scholars seeking to amplify the voice of Catholic women in support of human dignity, authentic freedom, and Catholic social teaching. I've been very uh, privileged to go to a couple of the, the forum's um, uh, little events that they've had. Not little events, big, huge, amazing events that they've had. She's also an expert on women, faith, culture, family, sexual morality, and gender ideology, which is what we're going to talk about today. Again, we're going to talk a little bit about gender. Well, no, we're going to talk a lot about gender ideology. And in fact, we, I, we asked Mary to come and talk with us because um, I think it was three weeks ago, a little over three weeks ago, I saw Mary on the steps of the Supreme Court. I had gone to uh, watch um, a, a demonstration. Uh, it was the day of the oral arguments of a case called Harris versus the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, if I got that right. And it was about, a, it was a case, a legal case that has to do with, with the definition of sex. Does the definition of sex just mean sex, male and female, or, or is it correct to expand that into gender, how people feel about themselves sexually, their sexual identity? So um, it was a crazy demonstration. I was a little scared, actually. I'd never been it, in, that kind of, um, in that kind of mood. You know, it was a, um, a huge crowd. That's right. And in, in some respects, it reminded me of what you see in front of the Supreme Court around abortion decisions because there was such a division in terms of, of the, uh, the different groups that were there. But there was also the same phenomenon where you have alliances. So yes. where I saw you, Gracie, we were with a group of, uh, of not, not all women, but a lot of women coming from all across the spectrum politically. And people who were there because they wanted to speak and, and to speak out about the fact mm -hmm. that sex is real. Our bodily reality is something we can't deny. And so there were radical feminists there. Mm -hmm. There were uh, people from the, the Christian right. There were people who were just moms and Okay, and so there was – I think the, the rally was put on. The organizers were, were an, an evangelical group of, of women – uh, very, very, very evangelical, very faithful women, very faithful Christian women, and a hard left radical feminist group who joined together. They joined forces to put on this rally. It was fascinating. There were speakers. One speaker was, uh, let's see, I think a man who uh, transitioned 
for a while to becoming, you know, to presenting as a female and then walked it back. He spoke very compellingly. And a, a, a young, a very pretty young girl who was a high school student who was, com- was is suing her high school for making her locker space unsafe, her locker room unsafe. Right, because one of the issues there in that Supreme Court case was uh, the idea of whether sex means something in terms of bodily reality. Because under Title IX, for example, and under other um, employment laws, it's always been okay to separate out private spaces for mm-hmm. women and men because our bodies are different. It, it makes sense. It's a, a safety thing, a privacy thing, a, a modesty thing. But now there have been these cases that have come up, and, and the Harris case you mentioned, where uh, someone who identified as transgender was contesting that and mm-hmm. was saying, because I now a man, I now identify as a woman, I get to to use women's spaces and things like that. So that's why, like, this young girl uh-huh. was there saying, no, it means something to be female, and, and we should have that right to privacy. Marianne Gracie, yesterday I had the, the opportunity to go to the Supreme Court and listen to a friend uh, do an oral argument in a case dealing with the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment. And before that, it was the, the justices were looking at the Immigration and Naturalization Act and statutory construction and all the things that judges can do, that they have the tools to do, to look at statutory construction and look at whether a clause is meaningless or has meaning and analyze in the context of a case. The Harris case almost seems like it shouldn't be the Supreme Court analyzing what's sex? What's the meaning and the limitations and the boundaries of sex? And yet they're being asked to expand sex to include concepts of, you know, your subjective perception of your identity. Right. Because it, the word in the, in the statutory language is sex. You know, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And, and part of the problem is that the EEOC had construed that sex equals something else. It mm-hmm. equals gender identity. And that goes back to a confusion that really has developed over the past 50 years. We've gotten used to hearing the word gender and thinking that it means male and female. Mm-hmm. But ideologically, its roots are far different. And it has now come to mean something else. We had a chance a, a couple episodes ago to speak with one of our colleagues who's also a friend of yours and part of the Catholic Women's Forum, Ashley McGuire. And she wrote a great book, Sex Scandal. And we had a long conversation about the difference between the word sex and gender. And, and she was kind of able to help uh, clarify things, I think, for Gracie and, and for me on that. Can you give us a, a nice overview of... How do we get to the point where everything seems to be conflating in on itself? Yeah, I, I think it is confusing for a lot of people. Like I said, we've gotten used to using one word to mean either thing, but but the the difference is uh, huge. So sex, mm-hmm. the word sex ref- refers to your your whole body organization towards reproduction. So there are only two sexes, mm-hmm. male and female, because that's what it takes to reproduce. And sometimes something can go wrong with the body, and you have what's called an intersex phenomenon. But, uh, but there are only two sexes. And, and Mary, and, on, on that intersex point, sorry to interrupt, yeah. I've been a physician for, since the year 2000, and I've seen exactly, and I'm a radiologist, so I see many thousands of patients a year, many thousands of patients, and I've only had one case of intersex that came across my desk in all those years, in thousands of cases. But go on. Yeah, but that's a good point, Gracie, because it's, it's rare that these kinds of uh, things go wrong in utero when the baby is developing, but it's become part of the conversation mm-hmm. because... Do you think the, it's a, a red herring that people are kind of yeah. throwing out which, what's a tragic being, and very dif- difficult case for any family? It's being used to justify, this tiny, tiny exception is being used to justify the idea that people can exist in a non-binary physical reality, which is not true. People are either male or female. Right. And that's exactly it. It's become a talking point for those who are pushing a transgender uh, ideology. But but what happened uh, sort of way back when in the late 50s and early 60s is uh, Dr. John Money, uh, who worked with people who had intersex um, disorders and, and worked with transsexuals, had a theory that you could separate sex from how you appeared in society, what what he called how, your, and how you your felt gender about, role. And how you felt about right. yourself. Right, and it eventually became an identity thing. But but his original insight was, you know, how you are perceived and how you act 
could look different from your bodily reality. And then he ended up um, performing an experiment on two young boys, one of whom had had a damaged um, or had suffered oh, an injury circumcision. during circumcision. I remember that, yeah. And and so anyway, the outcome of that was the word gender was sort of popularized to mean something mm-hmm. apart from sex, mm-hmm. that it didn't have to be rooted in bodily reality. And the radical feminists ran with that. Hmm. Why? Because they felt bodily reality, being a woman, was constraining. And so it was... Uh, it was much better from their perspective to talk about gender. In other words, how you're perceived, what roles you undertake. And within academia, things just sort of spun off from there. So so fast forward many decades. Fast forward have, many decades. We have had we a have lot the of case, theorizing. And, and now it, we have the case of Harris. We have the case of Harris. And but we have, it, it's rooted in those ideological mm-hmm, viewpoints that mm-hmm. it went from radical feminism to queer theory to now what's trans theory, which basically is a rejection of the idea that your identity has anything to do with, with your, your reality. bodily reality, mm-hmm. that it's completely self-determined. It's and, how you feel about yourself. And let me point out for our listeners that the case of Harris, in case they don't know, which they probably don't, most people don't know, has to do with a funeral home that um, there was a man, in uh, an employer, an employee at the funeral home for many years, a big, tall, strong man who worked with the, with the grieving uh, family members in the front of the funeral home. He didn't work in the back. And one day he turns up at work in high heels and a skirt. And then, of course, becomes you know, a stumbling block, block to the mourners and a, and a focus of attention and a, and a cause of scandal. And mourners want to go to mourn. They don't want to wonder why the man is wearing you know, pantyhose and high heels, this big, tall man. So um, when he, he was asked to dress appropriately, and he refused, and then he was let go. And he's suing because he says that, it, that under employment law, they, they fired him because he's transgender. When I would think that the funeral home very obviously thinks they fired him because he wouldn't wear the proper clothes for a man who is welcoming mourners in a funeral home. Right, and that brings up that question because his argument is that he, he is just like a woman, and he's dressing like a woman, and... Therefore, he should be allowed. He shouldn't be fired if he's conforming to the women's dress code. Mm, that's right. Whereas the employer's perspective is, no, you are a male. You look like you, and you look like a man in women's clothes, and you're disturbing and, everyone and at so the funeral you home. To, you need to follow the male <laughs> dress code. So that idea of what the word sex means doesn't mean gender identity. I, w- I was thinking back, even before we get to this Harris case, um, there were some cases where Price Waterhouse. Um, and, and dealing with the notion of, of sex stereotypes. And, and one of the things that feminists kind of push back against is the notion that women have to look and behave in a certain way. And especially in a workplace setting, the idea was a woman needs to be submissive, demure, quiet. Um, and so in many ways, it was very good. Women could be strong and, and leaders, and in, in that respect, could, uh, could should continue to advance professionally, um, being who they uniquely are, and that they weren't being kind of cabined. What's interesting about how the evolution in the law and in our thinking is, is these stereotypes are now coming back kind of to bite us in, in, the, in the behind, right, the backside, um, pushing for not seeing a woman in a certain way and seeing her for her unique potential is now being twisted in a way that those stereotypes are not even owned by any gender or any woman or man, right? Is, is that making yeah. sense? I mean, how... It, it's become very stereotypically focused. So, for example, the, the man in the Harris case, he was dressing in a way to conform to someone's idea. A stereotype. Yes, <laughs> of, of what a, a woman should look like. Because really, if you're a man and you don't have to wear high heels, why would you want to do that? <laughs> But it's funny because he's seeking protections to behave in a stereotypical way that's not unique to him. Right. Whereas women fought for the, the right to be women but have an expansive view of what that means in terms of, of the jobs you take, the, you know, the clothes you wear, the, um, how you, your mannerisms, all those things. So, Mary, when, we, when you and I were at the rally, we saw really compelling speakers. Right. And, and they, they were coming, as we said, from all sorts of different directions. But the ones that took my breath away, just took my breath away, were two, two women who spoke about their own experiences with their children becoming transgendered. 
And they really opened for me a, a, a really disturbing view into the life of the uh, into the life of children who are being affected by the transgender juggernaut, uh, and how the parents are experiencing this uh, as a lack, a total lack of control, a total lack of of ability to to help their children um, through this uh, through this time in their lives, this dis- this disturbing time in their lives, with the least damage possible. Yeah, and you know, even the word transgender is. Um the idea is that you are identifying in a way that's different from or you're rejecting hmm. your biological uh-huh. sex. So it's not, it used to be if you're a male, you're identifying as female. Now it's not that. It's if you're a male, you're rejecting your male identity and you can identify any which way. And so those those women who were speaking and, and I, oh my gosh, I totally agree with you. You hear the pain, you hear these experiences, and, and yet what they would say is, it's not that their children, quote, are transgender. Their daughters are their daughters, mm-hmm. but they've been sort of sucked into believing that who they are is really based upon this feeling that conforms or doesn't conform to various stereotypes, like and, you were saying. And, well, and, it, and it's definitely a rebellion against the self, mm-hmm. right? And at a time where we're It's an identity with- crisis, but all of us, uh, I, I was taking, I was, I was adding up our children. We have 22 children between the three of us. Uh, and many of them have already gone through adolescence. Adolescence is an identity crisis, <laughs> right? I don't know what I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to comb my hair, who I'm supposed to hang out with. You know, am I am I am I strong? Am I weak? Am I with the nerds or am I with the sporty right. guys? It's I, adolescence is an identity crisis. You hear these women talking about their their poor little boys and girls going into adolescence and then falling apart and into this identity crisis and then being approached um, and 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 like infected with this transgender yeah, in a very clandestine way. It's and it's an yeah. infection. It sounds like a horrible infection, a contagion of of this transgender ideology that then is is taking them and locking them into an identity crisis that's going to last their entire lives with horrifying physical and emotional consequences. Yeah, it's like a freeze frame. You take the most tumultuous period of, of a child's mm-hmm, exactly. life and they're <laughs> keep confusion. them in there. <laughs> you know, and and they're getting a script from the transgender sort of ideology folks. Mary, and, and freeze framing them there. What are the numbers looking like? Because we hear, I remember just um, earlier this year going to a, a conference, I think at the Heritage uh, Foundation, and they were talking a little bit about different countries where there have been adolescents and young people kind of I- identifying in a, a sex different than their biological sex. What's going on in the U.S.? What are the numbers? Is this kind of uh, passing fancy, or is there something that seems to be growing exponentially? No, this is growing exponentially, and that's one of the reasons why this is a huge worry. So whereas you used to have a few children in any given region, you know, in any time period, just a a few children, count them on Mm -hmm. one hand, who would be experiencing this confusion, now you have hundreds. And what we're seeing, too, is it used to be more typical that, you know, little boys would would be struggling with their identity. And now there's been a shift. So it's almost three to one adolescent girls who Mm. are being drawn into this. So so even how this is developing looks different. But basically, the numbers have more than quadrupled. And what we're seeing is uh, these centers, these gender clinics springing up all over the country. Mm. There used to be a handful. Now there's over 60 is Every it, would it be medical. unfair to call it the transgender industrial complex? I mean, oh, they're yeah. making a lot yeah. of money. Oh, they are. And they're yeah. making money hand over fist, uh, hurting children. Right, because they're creating customers for life. They're creating if you, customers. If you convince mm. someone that their happiness depends on taking opposite sex hormones, you have a customer for life. And numerous surgeries, surgeries yeah. that have very high complication rates that require numerous more surgeries and mm-hmm. whose results are abysmal. Which and surgeries you would never consider doing on someone who is a minor. We we yeah. don't do mastectomies on mm-hmm. on children who have health or breast implants on right on but a no, young that's, child. That's what's happening. I heard this described on Twitter a couple of days ago, and it really made an impact. That uh, this is this uh, the, these these hormonal um, treat, treatments between quote marks. Now I'm doing scary quotes for children is a plan to sterilize it, mm. y- children. Thousands of children in the United States are being sterilized. It's a sterilization campaign. (laughs) Think about it that way. 
Because if, if they're on puberty blockers and they never develop and then take the cross-sex hormones, they will be sterilized. So parents are making mm. decisions or doctors are making decisions with huge consequences. You know, now in, in our next segment, we have to break for our next segment, but in our next segment, we have, uh, we're going to have a mother call we, that we're going to talk to who, who went through this, and she's going to give us um, her story about how, how that feels, what this is like for a parent. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, joined in studio by my good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and our good friend, Mary Hassan, from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Two doctors and a lawyer for you today, talking about a very important topic. And uh, we were just talking about the way, and before the break, we were talking about the way that the transgender ideology juggernaut has moved on from adults to infect children uh, and the way that children are, are suffering under, this, under the assault of gender ideology. And um, so to that point, we've, uh, we've asked a, a friend to call in um, to talk to us because she, um, well, tell us about her, Andrea. Well, Gracie, in addition to there being uh, two lawyers and a doctor here, we're all moms. And uh, we are so happy to have joining us Beth Pierce, who's a mom who's been, um, her family's been struggling with this very challenge. Um, and she's a member of a wonderful group called the Kelsey Coalition. And we hope Ms. Pierce is going to explain a little bit more about uh, the group and her experience. But again, this is kind of all hands on deck. All of us, all of our families are being affected, whether it's within our family or in our extended family or friends. And so it's great that, Beth, you're, you're able to join us. We're really grateful. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, yeah, this, this issue, it, it, it seems to have sprung up out of nowhere, although, uh, as, as we know, the seeds of it were planted very cleverly, I think, for, for years before now. Um, just, just a word quickly about my own situation. Um, our daughter fell into this identity when she was uh, away in college. And so, although children are becoming more and more affected by this, it's, it's really a, a, a critical danger point, I think, when 18-year-olds, you know, when, when they're legally able to access cross-sex hormones and all this sort of stuff on their own without any parental control, uh, you know, they're away from home, they're anxious, they're starting a new life on their own, and are particularly vulnerable, I and think. And very young. They're still very young at 18. Exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, I don't think people really appreciate how much brain development there is between the ages of 18 and I, I think, you know, 25 is the mm -hmm. accepted time when, when, uh, when the frontal lobes kick in. So you can make a whole lot of bad decisions. Shoot, I know mm -hmm. I did in my own life, but way back when. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were all 18 once. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the thing that, that horrified me because I, like so many people, I think, had just assumed that anyone who said that they were transgender had to go through a really rigorous uh, counseling screening process and that there were, you know, that there were people who actually uh, tested for these things. Um, I, was, I was very naive, and um, actually our daughter, she ended up becoming so anxious that she dropped out of college and mm. moved back to our town. And uh, was under the care of a psychiatrist and a counselor who did not believe for a second that she was transgender because she'd never shown any signs of it you know, ever. Mm -hmm. um, but but she was able to go to Planned Parenthood and uh, without oh. any without anything other than a blood test, they wrote her a prescription. And that's you know that's their new business model. It as is. Y'all may have talked about in in other segments. But um, when you say you know, we, prescription, we about it. what what was mm -hmm. the prescription for? It was for testosterone. It was for testosterone. And, so um, she didn't have repeated sessions. There wasn't any consultation no. with. <laughs> no, no. In fact, if you go to any Planned Parenthood website, I, I think <laughs> probably any regional one, they're very proud of the fact that they don't do any gatekeeping. Um, it's it's Amazing. a total informed 
that model. And how yes. and how much does so, it cost to, to do hormonal oh, replacement hormonal assaults on your body at Planned um, Parenthood? <laughs> it's very affordable. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the upfront cost is, but um, I think that a monthly a monthly dose is about forty dollars. Hmm. It's, it's quite affordable. And did you affordable. did you notice changes in your daughter as she started this? Well, you know that that's the thing. I'm I, I am I am very blessed and more fortunate than many many parents that I have met in the course of this because uh, you know it was really answered prayers I, when when we knew that she was going to start this. Um, of course, every time I spoke with her and we were. We had had words and were pretty estranged by that point because mm. she didn't understand why we had a problem with that. Um, but every time I would speak to her, of course, I was, you know, looking for the signs, the deepened voice or, you know, the facial hair, all that. But I had been praying that she would have a bad reaction to it. And um, I, I don't know the details, but she did tell me later that after a couple of months, she decided that it just didn't make her feel good. Mm. Um, and so she, she stopped. Thank, thank goodness. But she had two roommates who um, who have been on it for at least a year and a half now. And so I, I, I had seen these girls yeah. uh, changing, and it was just, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking to see. Beth, did your daughter desist from her feelings of tra- of being transgendered? Um, I would not say that we're out of the woods because she's gone from that to non-binary, which is just a, you know, Oh, it's a different ridiculous yeah. concept, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but she's all about the they them pronouns, and so we have we have very tortured conversations where I try to avoid you know the new name she's chosen, the pronouns, Aww. all that sort of stuff, just just to maintain contact, and and that's where I think so many so many parents struggle, and why organizations like the Kelsey Coalition, um, Parents of ROGD Kids, which set up uh, in person support groups in various cities and states are so important because we we find ourselves I mean I'm anonymous today <laughs> we we are trying desperately to maintain a connection with our children and so we can't let them know that we're doing this sort of sub rosa advocacy um, and and trying to push back against this or else you know we might lose contact altogether Beth one of the women one of the women at the rally we were talking about in the uh, se- in the earlier segment uh, in front of the Supreme Court one of the women from mm-hmm. the Kelsey Coalition who spoke at the rally, mm-hmm. she told us a, a what I would say is a, a horror story of horror stories about this same uh, this same topic. So her daughter at 15 suddenly started mm-hmm. uh, talking about feeling uh, that she was a boy trapped in a girl's body, and rapidly was uh, affirmed in this at school without the knowledge of her parents. Was soon injecting uh, testosterone at that age. Yeah. Without her parents' yeah. knowledge, she was given the, the drug by an endocrinologist who didn't mm-hmm. get consent from her parents. And and this just, just crushed me to hear this. Uh, by the age of 17, she was living in a homeless shelter in Oregon and had had an outpatient hysterectomy and mastectomy mm. at the age of 17, yeah. Uh, yeah. paid for by our tax dollars, I'll have you know, right. through Medicaid. Right. And right. Uh, right. because this is done in Oregon at the age of 15 by these giant gender clinics who are making money mm-hmm. hand over fist on the sufferings yep. of our children. And at yeah. 19, she had a phalloplasty, also paid for by mm-hmm. Medicaid. These these uh, surgeries are disgusting procedures that have right. abysmal uh, re- mm-hmm. results, useless yeah. results, really, if you wonder, if yeah. you know what these um, organs are oh, for. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, right. and also paid or by our tax dollars, and the, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and they cost up to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Just to mention, well, and, yes, and and to me, that's one of the tragedies that doesn't get enough uh, oxygen in the public discourse. Is that these poor these poor children um, who you know they they somehow think that they are going to pass as the opposite sex, or I guess in the most delusional cases, think they will actually become the opposite sex. But you go through all this, and of course that doesn't happen because it can't happen. Mm, can't and happen, suicide, exactly right. The, right, and the suicide rates actually, I think, I think statistics bear out, increase after people have gone through a medical transition like that. And that makes because sense. I, I get, yes, the you know, I mean, reality is going to hit you in the face at mm. some point. Mm-hmm. Um, Beth and, 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 and when it does, it's terrible. 
Beth and Mary, I was listening uh, in preparation for our conversation today to um, some discussions about longitudinal studies. Um, Mm -hmm. And perhaps Mary and and you, Beth, I'm assuming both know about the studies about um, kind of the satisfaction of people who have transitioned and that the longitudinal studies don't show any kind of relief that that these people come. And if we're really caring about the tranquility of the person, you know, you're caring for the tranquility of your daughter. And, and that's kind of the, the perspective, I think, that we really need to think when we're talking about this. We want mm-hmm. people to be tranquil. We don't, and, and tranquility means, you know, it, it kind of right with God and, and, and um, stabilized. We don't right. want them to continue to struggle with whatever um, depression and suicide ideations. Perhaps, Mary, you know about some of these studies, and, and they were actually... Um, mentioned by the Obama administration that long-term studies didn't show a relief of the anxiety that promoted people to seek these kinds of interventions. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, There's the only long-term study that um, is out there is from Sweden because in the era of socialized medicine, the Nordic companies or Nordic countries track patients far better than we do. Mm -hmm. And so in the Swedish study, um, what they found was that initially, people who went through a transition and including surgery felt better. There's sort of a euphoria, a sense of, wow, I finally got what I want, and people are. Well, there's uh, probably a lot of tension, too. Right. But by the 10 year mark, their, um, their mental health just plummeted. And so uh, you saw rates of suicide that were. Um, astronomically higher, 19 times higher than the general population. Mm. And but what's confusing is, you know, you mentioned satisfaction. A lot of the more recent studies are only focusing in on that. They ask the person who's gone through the the procedure, "Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Are you?" And it, it's a short term measure that's mm-hmm. that's not asking the right question because they continue to have the mental health difficulties. But then they they're sort of putting out there these studies that say, "Oh, they're all they're happy with it." Mm-hmm. There's there's improvement and and so we have to we have to be a little bit suspicious and and look uh, more carefully at the actual numbers and what's happening there you mentioned the suicide rate and i think that it's important to realize and i learned this from listening to mothers from the kelsey coalition is that what's what happens when a child is in school and mentions something about feeling uh transgendered or gender insecure what happens is that the parents are immediately told that if the child is not affirmed, the child mm-hmm. will commit suicide. That this is, they're right. saving their child's life by affirming the child, even if that means um, starting him right away. It always actually means, <laughs> in their mind, it always yeah, actually always. means starting them right away. Uh, if they haven't hit puberty, if you can believe it, if they haven't hit puberty, they, start, they, they block their puberty and then... A year or two later, they start the cross-sex hormones mm-hmm. um, leading into surgeries and all the, the horrors that come later. But this is all about the way they do this is by saying the child will kill himself or herself if you do not mm-hmm. do exactly as we hmm. say. Now, the studies are not there. The studies, there's no scientific study that says that you're actually keeping your child from committing suicide or raising, lowering the chances of committing suicide. And you mentioned, Mary, these astronomic suicide rates and people who have been affirmed. Right. Right. And Beth, maybe you want to talk to this, um, both from your daughter's experience, but from her roommates and and things like that. Did you hear um, the idea of suicide being uh, thrown out there a lot? Was that something you felt pressure? No, I I did not hear that. I did not hear that. But but what I did hear was a high degree of anxiety Mm -hmm. that 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 settles upon transgenderism as as this uh, maladaptive coping mechanism, Mm -hmm. as as a lot of people have referred to it, Um, you know, Tumblr, all these internet sites, and uh, and the schools, you know, my daughter was, of course, an adult, a legal adult, when when this happened to her, so I'm not um, not as familiar with what goes on in the the lower grades, but but I will tell your listeners that there is a there's a wonderful resource that's been put together for parents that are looking for information, especially parents of younger children, um, and it's it's called the uh, Parent Resource Guide, and it's available online for downloading it. Uh, it's genderresourceguide.com, 
We're and gonna we'll that, we'll link to that in our in our podcast notes. Yes. That's very useful. Yes, yes, because because that that gives facts. You know, it, it pushes back against all of the all of the propaganda really that that uh, teachers and and everybody are just swallowing whole. One issue that comes up very strongly, and they came up in the during the rally in the Kelsey Coalition, they talk about parental rights. So maybe from mm-hmm. a from a legal perspective, my my legal friends here can. I, I understand that in many states, the parents um, are having their rights uh, just taken from them as far as soon as the child, as soon as the, the people suspect, the, the counselors, the, the therapists suspect that the parents aren't on board with affirming, they can, the parents can lose all rights to their child. Is this, is this true? Well, we're seeing that certainly with custody cases mm-hmm. and uh, the The case Texas in, case yes, was horrible. Right. <laughs> and that was exactly what happened. The two parents had split and they disagreed over... Um, the child's future. The the mother was trying to transition the young boy, a seven year old, mm-hmm. uh, towards a, a girl identity. So we definitely see it there. But really, the denial of parents' rights comes far earlier when this is going on in the schools, and and many of the schools have written into their policies that they not only do not have to, but they will not let parents know if their child is mm-hmm. is experiencing this kind of confusion because they're presuming the worst. They're presuming that the parents are are going to be a threat and not affirming and, and all this stuff. Well, and there's another issue of kids that are in foster care settings where, um, at least in some states, foster parents, in order to be able to receive a child, have to agree that if a child mm-hmm. uh, expresses any kind of gender um, insecurities that they're going to affirm pursuing a a change in that. And that's very difficult because these are kids who are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, if we think kids in general are vulnerable, foster kids are among the most vulnerable children. And they're being um, kind of ushered by these these human rights campaign and and pride groups to, to really be seen as kids that need this kind of solution to which is, you know, a, a, a chaos in their life that they didn't cause. Right. I, I read on the on the Kelsey Coalition website something about a letter that the ACLU wrote, Mary, that maybe you can tell us about mm-hmm. uh, to the all the public schools in the country. Yeah, they have several letters out there. Um, number one, just telling the schools that the child has a right to privacy, that the, mm-hmm. and so that the schools cannot tell the parents, which is just not true. That can't be true, right? It, it's, it's just not true. They were relying on two district court cases with different facts, but they have extrapolated this into sort of... Self-serving. An, yeah, <laughs> and, and an intimidation campaign, yeah. really. Um, and you think principals and people at schools are, are taking this as gospel because the ACLU wrote it to them? Yes, and they're afraid well, they're of fearful. lawsuits. Yeah, they're fearful of lawsuits, right. too. Right. Right. And what are these letters? So, so they say that the child has no expectation of privacy. So, what is that leading to in, in schools with transgender? No, they're saying the child does have an expectation uh-huh. of privacy. I'm sorry. And that, so they can't share the information. They with can't the share the information, not just with other people's, other students' parents, but with their own parents. So the child has to consent. So if you have a child who's confused and someone's saying, "Well, are your parents safe? Are they going to affirm you?" Mm-hmm. You're going to get a confused child who may say, "Well, I don't know," and and, and then and the, feeding the notion that their parents aren't safe right. places. Right. So it so it right. happens that a child that a parent could find out that their child has been little Sally's been called Jim at school for a, an entire year, and nobody thought to tell mom and dad. Yeah, that's becoming very common. In fact, it, you know, looking at the Kelsey Coalition stories and and the parents that I've talked to, you see that that they are sort of the last to know. Wow. Exactly. Terrifying. Exactly. And and Mary, Mary, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this is Beth again. Uh, it, it's my understanding that the ACLU really piggybacked on the Obama administration's uh, dear colleague letter, which the uh, the current administration has has really walked back. But that word is not trickling down to the schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not just not trickling down. A lot of school districts came out very forcefully because they were just sort of in opposition to Trump and whatever he was doing and just said, no, we're going to stand by our transgender kids and Mm -hmm. we're going to affirm them at all costs. So, Yeah, you know, and and, and I'll just just put a footnote to that. One of the things about this issue that has been very dismaying to me and and frankly mind-boggling is because we are so divided generally as a country – uh, there's this sense that anyone who is questioning the transgender ideology 
is a is a total right wing bigot. Mm-hmm. But, but, but <laughs> you've heard that are, too. But there, yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> but there are groups. I mean, you know, Kelsey Coalition is is nonpartisan. Um, I, I'm also uh, part of an online group called Hands Across the Aisle, and and that's a group that ranges from very conservative Christians to left wing lesbians and everybody in between. But we're all united in being alarmed at the erosion of particularly women's rights through right. all of this, mm-hmm. but also what's happening medically and psychologically to, to children and young people. But, you know, but you would never know that we weren't just all, you know, card-carrying Trump supporters. <laughs> Beth, there's um, something that you said in, uh, before that really hit me, <laughs> moved me in my heart. Um, when you said that you use a pseudonym, and when I f- first learned of that, I thought, oh, it's because she wants to protect herself from the attacks of, of these um, groups. But you clarified something in a beautiful way. And you said because you want to keep a relationship with your daughter. You don't want your mm-hmm. advocacy and your concern, kind of public concern, to affect your relationship with your daughter. And I think that that's right. a really important thing to point out, um, especially for parents we are connected to these beautiful creatures, and even when they're going through difficulties and challenges, and no school can sever those ties. And I think um, I'm really inspired by the advocacy that you've done publicly on this issue, but also the relationship that you've struggled to maintain with your daughter. And that's a really important thing for everyone to hear. When we face these things, it's, you know, at the the end, it's, it's that beautiful daughter or son of ours that we're wanting to save, get to heaven, um, right, and, and right, to right. pull out of this darkness. Yes. Well, and, and I have to say that I, I wish that my daughter, who's gone back to college, I wish that her nominally Catholic university was on my side on this, but, mm. um, but they have drunk the Kool-Aid and, uh, you know, sponsor a queer camp and have lavender graduation and the whole thing, and it's, it's absolutely scandalous as a Catholic. That reminds me, Beth. I've been thinking a lot about transgender and the way and the way that we have to keep it out of our parochial Catholic schools, because mm-hmm. for many, many, many parents, Catholic schools are not in the university level, maybe, but Catholic schools are safe shelters from some of the worst excesses of modernity, which I would say transgender ideology may be our worst our worst thing yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But Beth, thank yeah. you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences and for sharing your story. It was, it was a, a real treat to have you do that for us. Yeah, thank well, you so it, much, it, Beth. It was, it was my honor to speak with you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Mary Hassan, uh, for giving us um, the benefit of your wisdom and all your experience and knowledge on this topic. It was very wonderful to have you. Always great to be here. <laughs> We're going to keep asking you back. <laughs> And next we have Father Roger Landry, who comes to us every week and gives us a brilliant and very moving uh, prefigurement of this Sunday's Gospel for our benefit and yours. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel— Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily written in audio on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us all this Sunday. Jesus will speak to us about the reality of heaven. His affirmation happens in conversation with a group called the Sadducees, who are mainly members of the high priestly elites who didn't believe in the resurrection. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, what we call the Pentateuch, and thought that there was no reference there at all to the resurrection of the dead. So to try to test Jesus, they brought to him the invented example of a woman who successfully married seven different brothers after each previous brother had died. 
if she had become one flesh with seven different men until death did they part, they asked, then with whom would she be one flesh at the resurrection if they were all now alive in a place called heaven? Because she couldn't be, they supposed, one flesh with all seven, then there could be no resurrection. That was their argument. Jesus' answer highlighted various things. First, he said that it's only the children of this age who marry and are remarried. In heaven, he states, there'll be no marrying or giving in marriage because there'll only be one wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church. The institution and sacrament of marriage, Jesus implies, is a reality for this world. And the reason is pretty clear. Marriage has a twofold holy purpose, love and life. And in more traditional ter terminology, the mutual sanctification of the spouses and the procreation and education of children. In heaven, there's no purpose to marriage because men and women no longer need to be sanctified since they're saints. And there will be no new children because saints aren't having babies and baptisms in the afterlife. But while there will certainly be no marriage and conjugal sexual activity in heaven, there will certainly be love. Marriage in this world is meant to prepare spouses and children to enter into that love, the perfect love of God and the love of the community of the saints. And marriage is particularly well suited to achieve that purpose. The second thing Jesus says is that contrary to the Sadducees' idea, the Pentateuch does indeed speak about heaven. It speaks about eternal life. Jesus says that God revealed this when he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush and called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And hence, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob couldn't truly be dead. Eternal life, therefore, is real. November is the time in which the church has all of us focus on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. At the beginning of the month, we celebrate All Saints Day, which we remember and ask for the intercession of all those who have arrived at the place to which we aspire. The next day we mark All Souls Day and remember and pray for all the dead, especially those who are in need of our prayers and sacrifices to enter into paradise. Throughout the month, the church keeps us focused on the four last things, that each of us will die, some of us by surprise, much earlier than we think, that as soon as we die, we will be judged. And Jesus gives us the criteria of that final exam of life so that we're ready by loving him in those we encounter and living with Christian faith and hope and love. And then he talks about the two definitive states, heaven for those who have adhered to God, sometimes directly or through the cleansing place of purgatory, and then hell, the place of definitive self-alienation from God. These are realities that Jesus affirms throughout the gospel. But the key for us is what should we be doing now in conversation with the Lord who speaks to us about heaven? The first thing is developing a truly personal, vital relationship with God. The God of the universe is not a deity of a cemetery of dead bodies, but rather the God of the living. And not just the living in general. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's meant to be the God of Roger, Gracie, Andrea, Ashley, Jonah, and fill in your own name. The resurrection is not just an event, but it's a relationship with Jesus who says, I am the resurrection life. She's declared during the Last Supper, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus whom you have sent. Eternity begins when we enter into a deep, intimate friendship with God, where we join our life to his, because once he's truly living in us, we're beginning to live forever since his life is eternal. The second thing is to take advantage of the means God gives to enter into that relationship. The sacraments like marriage, but also baptism, confession, the Holy Eucharist, are meant to help us to enter into that vital relationship. God comes to abide in us and we to abide in him. If we keep the communion with God who is eternal, then death will be nothing other than a change of address. Third, we need to live with our proper end in mind and make choices for eternity. In the second reading we'll hear on Sunday, St. Paul tells us that God will guard us from the evil one and direct our hearts to the love of God and to the endurance of Christ. The evil one, the devil, is trying to sabotage our life to get us to direct our hearts not toward God's love but to this world, to make us throw in the towel on living for eternity. We need to be aware of it 
In Sunday's first reading, we'll see a great example of perseverance, of faith in God and the power of the resurrection, in the mother and her seven valiant sons from the second book of Maccabees, who refuse to offend God even should they have to die. The church is meant to be a school that prepares us to be martyrs, whether or not we actually have to shed our blood, tries to nourish our faith to the point that we would remain true to God to the point of giving our life for him who gave his life for us. The church doesn't exist to make us spiritual wimps, but to fill us with heroic virtue. And if we don't do that, we fail. So we prepare in our country to celebrate Veterans Day, we remember so many generations of audacious soldiers who were willing to sacrifice their lives for their country, for their loved ones, for innocent people abroad. And we remember their courage, their training, their heroism, and recognize that we can be similarly courageous soldiers for Christ until the end, knowing that what he promises, something far greater than a purple heart or a medal of honor. Jesus is God of the living. And he wants us to enter into a consequential conversation, not of words, but of lives with him so that we may experience the eternal joy of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the mother and her seven sons, St. Paul, and all the saints. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Landry, for another lovely homily. I, I bring it to church on Sundays, my, my, my mental homily that I heard from Father, from Father Landry, and uh, it, it helps me a lot. Not that my own pastor isn't a wonderful homilist. <laughs> I don't you want to imply do. that he's not. I play it on our way to Mass because it takes about— that much time and it really is a way to oh that's a good it's, idea it's like the preview it helps everyone pay attention i have i have mostly i have two children that go with me to mass now because my other children have, have flown the coop but um well my, my van is i have full. one child my van is full yeah. of people <laughs> I, mean, I have one child <laughs> i have one child that listens very carefully and comments on the homily at church and another one that's like he might as well be somewhere else he has no idea what's going on no he's just taking it he's a boy he's, he's a boy <laughs> That's how boys are. We hope that they are in ways that we can identify, right? I mean, that's the whole point of this conversation is we all know boys and girls are unique and special, complementary and equal in dignity. But um, the blurring of lines is frightening, wasn't that? It is. And I know know that I should should think about this with the same sympathy for boys and girls. But I have a special sympathy for girls because I think that the world is, is a tough place for a pubertal girl pre-pubertal, into puberty, into adolescence, it, there's so much pressure on them to be a certain way, a certain way that's that's maybe impossible to be, right? Like, like, like magazine covers and all this perfection. And now they're also supposed to be good at sports, which I don't get. <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> you know, you, you point out something really interesting and in some of the work that the Kelsey Coalition is, has um, highlighted is if we would think about our daughter struggling with an eating disorder or an anorexia, we wouldn't tell her, yes, let's go and get a liposuction. Um, and if we think about gender confusion, um, we should have the same kind of response. We want to help our children through confusion, mm-hmm. not give them an out to justify or affirm the confusion which is then going to create a lot of other problems. And, and at the other end of adolescence ought to be, for all our children, a loving acceptance of their selves as God created yeah. them. God was, created us exactly the way we're supposed to be. Sometimes we have trouble understanding. No, and we're rebellious. From the beginning, we've been rebellious. We're definitely <laughs> rebellious. Thank you, friends, for listening to Conversations with Consequences. And I hope you join us next week. You can listen to our podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts, you can also go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, and it will lead you right there. Tell your friends about us, and we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>